that he was hung up on the cross. But Satan gets angry when you tell somebody he's alive. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Where'd I go? Why am I not on the screen? There I am. No, I'm not. Where am I going? I'm talking to myself. You think after doing this for 500 times, I would know what I'm doing, pushing the buttons. What's up, everybody? This is Gratitude Unfiltered. I'm your host, Joshua T. Berglund. You guys are in for a treat today. I am so pumped um, about our guest, award-winning director. This dude's just awesome. So he's just, I, I've, I've only known him for a couple weeks now, but I've been following his stuff. I've been looking at his body of work uh, and what he's created, and he's just, he's just awesome. Like, I'm so pumped to have him on. We're going to have a lot of fun. This is a rare evening gratitude unfiltered so i may be a little bit loopy this is the fourth broadcast so there's no telling what will come out of my mouth hopefully it's not too offensive but we are blessed to uh blessed to have you here you want to share this out we're getting ready to play god i hope i don't get in trouble with uh copyright people but we're about to play his award-winning music video this is super cool i love this artist i've listened to this song multiple times today and i'm just i'm digging it so you guys check it out. We're going to play a commercial, and then we are going to bring our guest, Paul, on. This is going to be dope. It's going to be a lot of fun. Ladies and gentlemen, check this out. second and look at my life from a different perspective why is it trials and tribulations always come my way when i try to direct this positive energy infinite remedy to the dark times of my life anytime i'm going through it i spaz and go stupid on beats and i put up a fight i'm dodging and ducking and socking and pushing i'm blocking the plot and i'm trying to find a way to get on my feet again tell me what i gotta do to you to get it through to you i'm an infinite individual i really don't need a friend i really just need a pen pad and a blank piece of paper to take every single lyric and feed it in like way back when me and my homie axis were on a mission to show the world how many syllables we could bend this is what happens when everybody in the room wanna doubt you People thinking that they got you figured out But they ain't figure out about everything else so Out of my head to get it, I'm so fed up with it Never sympathetic, I can end a gimmick with an energetic flow of lyrics You rappers are so pathetic, yeah I said it None of you stand a chance, get a coffin and lay in it in advance Because all I ever do is make a murder scene It ain't occur to me, I'm making fans But that's okay, because I'll be in my zone And if I don't paint every single visual Then I've got no way to unleash the beast Tell me what you gonna say when I be the only one Coming up from the ground below you, take a step back because I'll destroy you I'm sick of these simple Sick of these suckers around me That really wanna be a gangster But smile and won't shoot And they rap's equivalent To a pile of rope When I snap I'm giving it my all And go through Instrumental after instrumental And if you wanna battle You can be all but hopeful They tried to ignore us My two legs on my tour bus I came a long way But that's just what happens When the road you be taking Ain't got any shortcuts I've been at it for a minute now Stacking my ammo to send them out Making them spin around When they get hit With a lethal flow And deep to show That none of y'all get a crown King of this, king of that Can't we just make a rap I don't need nobody gassing me Actually I'm causing casualties, ain't no one passing me Had to be doing it massively But regardless what all of y'all need to know Is these one-hit wonders are only meant to be seasonal Weak as flow, but you wanna claim you're the best out You're the best out, ain't nobody ever feel you So take a seat, you make belief because Ain't nobody ever get to see the real you I'm looking at you from a distance Get into business with my persistence Tell me what is this, I gotta fix this Now sit back down and I insist I could rock a show, I could drop a flow Make it stupid how they stop and drop and roll Make hip-hop hip stop cause she begging for mercy and blows up my microphone and now i don't need no one's approval i'll murder them all with my judo what's a dinosaur to a poodle yeah in other words trying to come stop me is futile give me a second i'll take a second and throw them a second to show them that ain't nobody wrecking the form it's said to be warm whenever you inside of my radius everybody want to battle but they can't even make a fit stop and listen no competition's gonna stop the vision flows hot and get some i'm talking with some kick dropping victims don't get the picture no crap and fix them I started this out at the age of 10 At the dinner table I would take a pen And write a bunch of words down Weird sounds when I would mumble trying to make them bend Bought a microphone to put it through I knew there was nothing I couldn't do I still got the same plan But the only difference is I've been controlling proof Wow! 
That was super cool. Ladies and gentlemen, it is an honor for me to introduce. I'm not even going to try to say his last name because I don't want to butcher it right now. <laughs> but I am honored uh, to introduce you to award-winning filmmaker, Paul. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Gratitude Unfiltered, Paul. How you doing, man? Hey, thanks for having me. That was kind of a cool video. Who made that? Uh, oh, I hope it me. <laughs> <laughs> Man, yeah, was, that is so cool. weird because uh, the last name, because your last name is Borglin and mine is Breno, and it's Breno. very Norwegian. So, no, Minnesota has. Oh, no. Are you crapping out? Are you there? No. Yeah, are you still with me? Okay, good. All right. I, you froze up for a second. Um, yeah, we're, we're having some weird and bad weather here in uh, Texas. So, I'm hoping the connection is still going to be. Oh, no. Oh no. <laughs> We're going good. Okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. God, like, let's fix the technology, please. Like, <laughs> no <laughs> technology demons in this broadcast today. No, I rebuke you. Paul, I, um, first thing before we get into all of this, what are you grateful for today, my man? Oh, geez. I'm just, uh, I, I feel, well, there were so many things. It's not just one thing, but I'm grateful to be here with you, first of all. And uh, it's very, it's it's a, it's an incredible honor when somebody or some people invite you on because of the work that you that either that you've done or that you're doing. And I'm just I'm just so grateful to God that he, uh, as Rush Limbaugh said, um, talent on loan from God. And that's kind of how I look at it because mm. this is the talent that I have. But I didn't just start doing it. I mean, I think God blessed me with some gifts, and I'm now just be glad I'm can be able to use them. Meg, you are speaking my wife and I's language. I we had just had this conversation before you came on. I mean, I kid you not. It was like I, I I think the words that came out of my mouth are I'm a genius, but it's because of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's nothing like it's not me at, at all. But I think we all have genius in us when we just yeah. trust God and allow Him to work through us, and then all of a sudden. It's like everything that we touch amplifies, and it's it's it just becomes. That is very much true, really, really? is because uh, in the film and video world, uh, I guess just like politics or or just being in the public spotlight, you mm. meet so many people who think they are it. I mean, they are it. You do not question me. You do yeah. not wonder. You don't even talk to me unless you're my buddy. And I look at that and I thought, oh my God, it's like you really need something bad. And that is humility, you know. And I was actually working in Dallas several years ago. And I and I I was around these same people in Houston years ago, but not as many as in Dallas because Dallas is the big D. Mm -hmm. You have the Boys, you've got Dallas TV series. Dallas is known for ego. And I was around a bunch of guys that they one guy was he did one job, one job, and a high school kid could have done his job. But he thought he was it. And he bragged about it all the time. And I thought, you know what? I really want to learn everything I can from you to know what never ever to be. Yeah. Because he was uh he was he was kind of like a clean cut redneck. Cause he looked, he didn't have the, you know, he didn't have that typical good old boy look, but yeah. he spoke, you could tell. Mm -hmm. so, uh, learn what you can and avoid this guy at all costs. <laughs> so I yeah. I remember, so I, I was really arrogant um, for a long time. And I got humble in the worst way. And I got humbled publicly. No. Um, but I, I did learn those lessons. And, you know, it is, it's humility sometimes have to be, has to be beaten into you. Yeah. <laughs> it, I was one of those people that had to be beaten into. But I'm grateful for that because... Now I don't take things for granted that I used to, and especially the opportunity to be able to meet with people that are doing things that I want to do. And you know, like I think about like everything I've been blessed with in my life up to now, like ever since I gave my life to the Lord. And I was, you know, I was blessed before that. I just didn't appreciate it to notice it. But when I became when it was had had no money, homeless, had nowhere to go it becomes very, very easy to remember the person that opened a window for you to be able to crawl through so that you could have an opportunity, whatever it may be. 
Oh, and you start to remember those yeah, things. Absolutely. It's amazing. Um, and I and I think about all of the people like because I didn't know that I would ever work in the industry at all. Like I saw a vision for it, but I'm like, I live in Oklahoma. This ain't happening. But for yep. you, you grew up in North Dakota, and oh, I'm yeah. pretty sure there's a big. I mean, there's more going on film wise in Oklahoma than North Dakota. Yeah, so where did where did this passion come from? Being born in North Dakota. Well, it was interesting because when I was answering questions uh, for other interviews that I've been honored honored with, I began to wonder that because when you grow up, I think every child has a thing they're attracted to. Mm -hmm. You know, cars, it could be, I don't know, sports. It could be one of those niches. And ever since I was like five or six, and I remember this because I can tell you this story later on, but I remember, you know, getting up and always being attracted to TV. Where wherever there was a screen, that was where, I, where that's where I was at. And it's very similar to today when you have like e babysitters. They give them an electronic, and that's their babysitter. You know, yeah. that was kind of like me way back in the '70s, because I was born in the late in the late '60s. And I remember watching TV and just being sucked into it. And one of the big uh, things for me was uh, the Super Friends cartoon. You had Batman, Superman. But, I would, but it was not only the cartoon, but the voices on the cartoon, because every Superman had the best voice to me. So did Batman, Wonder Woman. And as I kept going, my father and my mother, mm -hmm. it was a big, they were a big influence to me of what my career was going to, yet they were my biggest critics because coming up in a small town, you don't do TV because it's too small, too small market. You can't make any money. And unless you're married mm -hmm. with kids, that's what you'll do because you won't make more than 40 grand a year, if that in a small market. Sure. But my father was a salesman in TV and radio growing up. So I was around it. He was in the business side. And I distinctly remember going out, always being influenced by uh, movies and TV, going out to the TV station. And I remember distinctively that I was saying hi to my, my father was introducing me around to people, news anchors and the creative people, salespeople, saying, this is my son, blah, blah, blah. And the door, the studio was cracked open. I had no idea what was behind there. But I saw a bunch of lights, and they were the studio lights. And I was drawn to that. I thought, what's in here? Wow, this is so cool. I walked in here, and I thought I was in Hollywood. Because, <laughs> you know, it just it had that same feeling, and I saw the, the camera. And I was kind of sucked in right away, not even knowing it. I thought, I get this. I understand this. They started talking about tungsten and, you know, lighting and cameras. And I looked at the lighting. And I, or I looked at the camera, the studio camera was one of those old, old cameras. And I began to pan it and tilt it. And I thought, oh, this is it. This is it. And I just loved it. And then still photography came after that through a class that I was in. And it sort of all culminated. And that's what the big draw was. But I had no idea of what to do because in North Dakota, it's a great state for many, many people. If you're into agriculture and farming, 99% yeah. of the business is that. Similar to South Dakota, but South Dakota is more tourism. But North Dakota <laughs> primarily wants, they kind of want to be left alone. And I don't want to say that in a bad way. They just like, they like the small town. They don't like all the publicity yeah. and everything else. But it was a great place to grow up and have an imagination because I didn't have the computer. I had comic books. And I thought that really fed that need. And I just loved it. And that's where I got my, my love from it. Just, it just fed from there. That's so cool. I, when I was a kid, um, I had two things that kind of probably helped this, but my father was a musician. He toured with Ike and Tina Turner and Jerry Lee Lewis. And I remember when we would be going to our homestead when this it's Indian Hills road, Norman, Oklahoma, we were in the city. So we would be listening to KOMA and he would, or K, yeah, KOMA. And he would be telling stories of all of the different artists that would play. And so if he had toured with them or played with them, he would tell us stories. But as fascinated as I was of, of the musicians and the artist, it was the DJ or the, the interviewer that I was always drawn right. to. So then I discovered yep. the, the, you know, Don Imus and uh, Oprah, of course, and Larry King and you know, and I, I as a kid, and, and oh, and infomercials, love yeah. infomercials. Even to this day, I still love infomercials. But I was always drawn to it. I couldn't explain why. Yeah. I listened to talk radio as like 12, 13, 14 years old. I'm listening to talk radio, 
who does that? But I was fascinated. And anytime yep. anyone ever asked me what I wanted to do with my life, I would say, yep. I want to be a talk show host. But I'm not going to go to broadcasting yep. school, so that's never going to happen. Well, <laughs> not so true now. I mean, it's amazing how that works. But let's go back to childhood dreams. Sure. I, say, I think I say this every time I broadcast. Those dreams, I believe with all my heart, are God showing us what's possible, what he has for us. We just have to pursue it. What do you think about that? And that's kind of what I, I well, I, I completely agree because if if there if I didn't have my faith in Christ and I and we talked about this, I'm not a religious yeah. guy because you can be religious about anything, you know. And it's all you have to do is think of something, have followers near a God to them. It's like, sorry, I ain't gonna work. But to me, I believe that as as we're growing up, one of the things, and you sort of touched on it, I began to talk, and in my not, not that I wasn't able to, but it was the sound, sound of my voice. And I can hear it coming back a little bit once your voice gets moist with like water, not with anything else, but it has that thing in your throat to where you know that yeah. if you get on, if you get near a microphone, if you get near a phone, people can hear that voice. And to me, I was blown away by voiceovers, narrators, as well as the movie trailer guys. That blew me away. I thought, I want oh, to do yeah. that. I didn't have I didn't have that. I had the voice of monster thing. So, and when I got into video, I went to broadcasting school at my local university when I was growing up. It was three blocks away. And that I might as well go. And people kept mentioning that over my childhood. I thought, if it's mentioning it, there's got to be something there. And I began reading it mm -hmm. and I began, I took a theater and I didn't like being an actor. I just didn't because I didn't have any range. My voice is a certain way. I can't do I can't do accents. And I can't sing, but I can talk. And that used it. So I began doing voiceover work for commercials. And I wanted to do a movie trailer, but you have to have that niche, that specific niche that only maybe one out of a million people have. But I started yeah. to love doing it because people kept saying, man, you got a good voice. And then I thought, God, I hope I have a good face too. You know, <laughs> you know. But I love doing it because you can perform. And then you yeah. can help other people perform. And still to this day, I want to do more of it, but I haven't done it in I don't know how many years. But it's so great when you have that skill. It, you know, I've all, I'd, uh, always had was told that I had a radio voice, and yeah, and I'm like, well, that's great. I mean, that, that's cool, and you should do voiceover. Well, I remember when I first tried to read copy. Yeah. Listen, it's one thing to get in behind a mic and just talk and yep. and say what's on your heart or whatever. The reading copy is a sport. <laughs> you got to train for it. There's such an art to it. Easy. There's such an art to it because I remember, I think it was, I don't know how many years ago it was, but I remember starting my career, I think it was 19, oh, I want to get this right, 88 to 89. Because in 89, I joined the Air Force. And I got out and I restarted it again. But I had a chance to go back and listen to an old commercial. This is on VHS, you know, archive stuff. It was so yeah. awfully bad. I thought, my God, I, I can't believe I didn't get fired. But it was one of those deals where I, I, I was able to work in Houston years later, and I got it down. And I remember one time, and I can't remember the name of the guy, Joe something. He was Mr. VoiceOver guy in Houston. He did. He was like the guy to call upon. And he came in, and he was supposed to voice a deal for Honda. No, no, no I'm sorry, Yamaha. And, oh. and the commercial Yamaha was, was going to be seen at Reliance Stadium, the home of the Texans. This goes back to like 2001, 2002 when the Texans first formed. He didn't show up, so they asked me to do it. And I thought, you want me to do – are you serious? So I got in there, and my, my voice was just right enough to where I never saw it, but I said, yeah, this is going to be at Reliance Stadium during the Texan game. And I thought, it's going to be loud. Nobody's going to hear this. <laughs> but I thought it was really cool that my voice was able to use that. And I thought, this is great. I just try to make it sound not like him but like a movie trailer voice. So that was the closest thing. That's that's really cool. I, you and know, I just really it, loved it. it. It, you know, and the thing too that I love about where we are with technology. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can say about technology, but you yeah. know, there's people all over the world, not in just in LA. There's people in Oklahoma and Kansas, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wisconsin, India, Beirut. There's people that 
you know, have that vision, have that skill for filmmaking or the, that the talent for it. And now the right. world has opened up. Like Hollywood is a global thing now where there's opportunities everywhere. I mean, yeah. I go through allcasting.com and I have my agents and all of that. But And you see these gigs that are available and it's like, I yep. know other people dream of this. And it's, it's the most, it's yeah. so competitive and it's not for everybody <laughs> because you deal with 99% rejection. And that yeah. sucks sometimes. Because you think yeah. you're perfect for something, and you but you don't fit the director's vision. Well, but there's talk such about, an opportunity talk about now. Rejection. Um, one of the things that I have come to get used to that I had my heart set on for ten years. Ten years. This is on my. But I wanted to go to Arizona and, and live in Phoenix because most of my family have moved down there, and yeah. every single resume that I've sent, even to this day, has been rejected. Every one of them. Wow. And they never say why. I thought. Could you give me any feedback? And you'll you'll love hearing this because I love because it's so ridiculous the story. Uh, last November December, I moved down to Arizona from North Dakota, and I was down there and I applied for a government job. And the government job was about a forty five minute drive from where I was staying. I thought great, I can perfect salary, everything was good. And I had this meeting with the guy, and I began telling him, well, I was I, I was honored enough to have these awards on me. He goes, yeah, we noticed that, blah, blah, blah. At the very end of the interview, I thought, well, I would love to join your company in. That was the end of it. I contacted them two weeks later, and they said, oh, we just hired a guy. And I thought, oh, really? It's like, could you give me any feedback? He goes, well, I think you need to tone down your awards a little bit. And I thought, really? Your what? Your awards? I need to tone them down? Yeah, they said, well, it's just, it's, they're just, it's just too many. And I thought, so you want <laughs> you have a lot of awards. <laughs> and I thought, I've never heard that. It's almost like saying you're way too good at what you do, so we can't hire you. And I thought, okay, well, that was the first time I'd heard that. But that started the downfall for me in Arizona thing. I'm still getting rejected to this day, but I'm going to go to Texas because they actually want me. Yeah. Well, heck with it. I'm going to move there, and I'll go to Arizona when I, you know, and I can shove it in their face. <laughs> I won't. Well, I, you know, and I, I, I understand what you mean. Like, I, I get that attitude. I totally understand. I, you know, my influences in entertainment are kind of random, but Master P and Nipsey Hussle have had the biggest influence on me and my mindset and how I approach the industry as a whole right. and even how we operate our media organization because it's own everything, own your message. You right. own you right. own the distribution. You own the products that you're promoting. You like every you own it, yep. And or you, or you license it out, like that. Always it resonated with me. I got I had the opportunity to be a backup dancer in uh, Master Pete's son Little Romeo's video. That was my first first time on camera in that sense. And I but I remember like I was like because I, I thought Master P was what he presented himself as. So I was trying to get him to smoke weed with me and do all this stuff. I'm just a punk college kid. But he didn't. He was like, no, nah, man, I'm not about that. And I'm like, what? You're a rapper. What are you talking about? So it made me curious. Right, right. And so I started paying attention to him and what he was teaching. I'm like, and this is in college. So yeah. you know, how many, I'm 41 now. So this is over 20 years ago, I think. Math, math sucks. Right, right. But it really had a huge impression on me that that lasted so and now what i was going with with what i was saying earlier about all over the world people have these dreams of being filmmakers or actors right now right. is an opportunity for everyone to be able to go yeah. into the industry and have a little bit more control of their destiny than ever before and that's because of technology so right. from your perspective because you've been in the industry you're seasoned you have all of these awards how like seeing the changes and how technology has changed things, changed how going to a theater is no longer yeah. really the thing. How how has that adjustment been for you in preparing for the future of media and filmmaking? Well, it's interesting when you mention people who interview, I because I, I first have to say, because <clears throat> I know that this actually two gentlemen like you and those people who influenced you. I, my first time I got to meet a Hollywood cinematographer was in 1991. And I was actually stationed in the Air Force in San Antonio. And I was looking at all the technology because nobody would think that you could make any movies now 
now compared to like way back when, because back then you had to, I don't know if you had to go to the right school, but it, but it helped because it's all about connections. But then you can't go buy a Panavision 35 millimeter camera for two to 300,000. I'm no idea how much they cost. Whereas now you can pick up a DSLR camera and shoot it for 500 bucks. It's the same thing. That DSLR revolution. Well, two gentlemen influenced the heck out of me that I actually got to meet. And that was the first guy that I met. And his name was Ken Lampkin. And Ken Lampkin passed away, I think, about 10 years ago or so. But he photographed the Frasier sitcom. I oh, got cool. to meet him when I was in San Antonio. And this is before he did Frasier. He was coming off of TV series Wings. And I saw him on a morning show, and I thought, I have to reach him somehow. And I was in the Air Force, so I didn't have any time. I didn't even have a car because I, I had just come over from my overseas assignment in Italy. And that transformed me as a person living over in Italy. And this is during the Persian Gulf War. So things were just, wow, life-changing. I get home, and I'm watching this TV show, and there Ken is. And they were making an independent film, film with Dirk Benedict. He was on the A-Team. And I thought, I don't care. I don't care. I just want to meet Ken and talk to them about cinematography. I did, he called me up and I went on the set for three days and watched him work. Oh, that's cool. It was, and his wife and I still, we're still in touch with each other. It's amazing. Now, six years later, I'm maybe six, seven, eight years, it, sometime later, I'm in film school in Montana and I should back up saying, before I was stationed in San Antonio, I got to uh, go to a, uh, when I was home on leave, this is before the Persian Gulf War, um, I got to go to a little movie called Dances with Wolves. A little movie. <laughs> and of course, everybody was talking about it because it was shot in South Dakota and I'm from North Dakota. So it was a big deal back then. I had not heard of it. When I went to the movie, that single movie made me want to be a cinematographer. That single movie. And fast forward to Montana, and you know the TV series Yellowstone? Never saw it, but I heard about it, yeah. Okay. It's Kevin Costner, Taylor Sheridan. It's a masterful series, modern-day Western. Kevin Costner is a star. That's where they're shooting it, in Montana, where I went to film school. Oh, wow. And it's amazing because when I was in Montana, I got to meet Dean Semler, the Oscar-winning cinematographer of Dancing with Wolves. I wrote him a letter saying, you are one of the reasons why I became a cinematographer, and I just wanted to send this and thank you for your inspiration. I did not invite myself, didn't say I could have a job. I just said, I'm a, I just want to say thank you for being such an inspiration. He called me, his assistant called me, said, Dean wants to meet you. And they were actually on my campus that night. So I met him, took a few shots with him. And I said, do you mind if I just watch? And he said, soak it in all you want. Just make sure you don't take cameras when we're rolling. And I thought, perfect. That was the dream right there because he said, I said, Dean, how, how do you start? And he was from a small uh, town in South Australia. Where they had no where they had no tv so it was almost similar to north dakota small town middle of nowhere so he my experience and my growing up mirrored his so it was just amazing and now with technology um and the reason i'm telling you this story is because when i first won my first cinematography award this is 2016 i wrote to dean again saying dean i don't know if you remember me or not but i just won my first cinematography award and you continue to inspire me well, Dean then called me, and we talked for about an hour about cinematography. And I thought, this is just amazing. You. We talked about all the technology, and you know, and he joked with me saying, um, I'm just waiting for the uh, studios to call me up and say, we've got a film with Angelina Jolie. We're going to be shooting in Africa, and you have an iPhone to shoot it on. And we kind of joked about that. But there's award-winning films being shot with iPhones. Oh, geez. You talk about uh, there was a uh, commercial on the Super Bowl with an iPhone yeah. nine or six or whatever a couple years ago, but it was a snowball fight done with, in a very cinematic way. I could do that. Well, I found out that they actually shot it on an iPhone, but the cinematographer was a James Bond feature filmmaker. He shot it, and I thought I look at it like nowadays it really doesn't matter what you shoot a film on; it's the creative eye behind it. Yeah. And I thought, you could shoot something on VHS, and if it's a good story, people are going to watch. That is true. That is really true. Um, I mean, the quality, obviously, there's you want to have quality. In other words, right. you don't want the internet breaking up the feed and things like right. that. But 
people will watch black and white. In fact, because now with technology and when COVID happened and everything's shutting down, right. TV started to look like Facebook. Like StreamYard technology was basically what was on TV. And I mean, there's right. some other streaming uh, technologies out there that are probably a look. I mean, they're definitely better. Um, yeah, right. But it's not for the masses. Everything started to look alike. And it's it's really interesting. Like I I think I shared this with you, or maybe it was the last show I did uh, today. I've done this is the fourth one. <laughs> it reminds me of when I first started. Uh, the good old days. But um, but what it reminded me of. Well, I lost my train of thought. Never mind. Doesn't matter. Okay. What I want what I want to ask you about though is the the technology. How do you see? the industry kind of morphing into itself. In other words, going back to what I was saying about TV and Facebook and YouTube, where now it all kind of looks the same. You can do the same exact things that you see on CNN or Fox or ABC. Right. You can do all the same stuff at home. Like you don't need all of this. You yeah. don't need a big studio. You don't need all of that. But even filmmaking, now that you can do it with a phone, how do you see the industry? Do you think it's going to kind of all morph together and become some mishmash thing, or it's going to splinter into different categories? Because it's definitely not remaining the same. No, it's it's really hard to say because who knew? I mean, um, I, I remember, and maybe this was foreshadowing, foreshadowing and prophetic a little bit. I remember I had a Pentex K1000 camera. This goes back to the mid to late 80s when I was just discovering photography, how much I loved it. I was on a hill photographing uh, just my hometown. I don't even know what time of day it was, but I wanted to see what color the film would be because I was just discovering all this. I was taking pictures and I looked at the lens, but then I started to pan and tilt to do this. I was like, man, I wish this was video. DSLR revolution. <laughs> and I thought, who would have thought that idea would come true years later? Because so many people now, with the, I think it was either uh, Japan or I think Japan, they're thinking ahead so much that, uh, you know, iPhones now can shoot 8K. Or, you know, the Ursa Blackmagic camera, that's a shoulder camera. I've got a, a, a Blackmagic, it's an Australian camera that is now competing with Canon, that's competing with uh, Sony, you know, like, and uh, the Panix Lumex. All these DSLR cameras are coming out. And I, I was joking with the guy saying, I wish they would stop upgrading because I still need to learn 4K. <laughs> and then I thought, I think we make it into a dangerous territory because once, and, I, and I was, uh, I had a cousin of mine. This was when I was in film school. This is before I met Dean. I think it was 1996. I graduated in 97. I was out, I was out to uh, Los, Angeles, Los Angeles and got to be a guest of a, uh, of a company that did uh, motion picture rental equipment from you know grids and or not grids but uh, dollies and lenses and so forth. It was it was like like a kid in a candy store. I loved it. Are they are they on um, Santa Monica Boulevard by chance? They're in Santa Monica, but this is this is year. This is nineteen ninety six. Oh okay okay. I was like oh I know I those guys. Know okay. Yeah. Well, I was actually helping uh, my my cousin's then husband. To, uh, it was just fun for me because I went out there for a lot about a week. And I thought, this is cool seeing L.A. and all this other stuff. And I remember seeing the first high-definition, like, demo. But it didn't it didn't register with me. I thought, oh, this is cool. I was just taking everything in. I was seeing Uncle Louie from Seinfeld walk down the road. You know, all these movie stars. It's like a fair in Hollywood. But I remember seeing a lot of technology, but not thinking about anything that was going on in the future. Because you're just trying to get through graduation. I need to buy 60-millimeter film and blah, blah, blah. And then I have to edit tape to tape because I can't edit on film and all this other stuff. And I thought, where's technology going to go? And I thought, somebody said during that time, makeup artists are going to hate 8K and 12K. And then why? Because it's so sharp, you see every single blemish. And I thought, God, it's true. I bought a Lumex 4K camera for like 500 bucks. And I shot some 4K footage. And it was so sharp and beautiful. I thought I'm in trouble because you see every flaw. Yeah, how a makeup artist going to handle this? News yeah. anchors had to when HD first came out. They the whole makeup game changed 
because you could see how well yeah. i don't want to say anything bad about anybody but <laughs> they weren't as attractive as you thought they were yeah <laughs> just leave right. it at that because I thought the lighting has to be so right because if there's a little shadow, it could be a makeup that they missed or something. And I thought, this is not going to be good. But I thought, they already have the, uh, the black magic uh, cinema camera they have, which is just shoulder camera. Uh, they have they have 12K out now. And I thought, would you just stop because 20K is next. And like, I thought, it's going to be crazy. I can't wait to well, where they have choose-your-own-adventure movies where – Virtual yeah. reality just puts you on the set, and now you're in your favorite movie, getting to play your favorite character. Like, I think yeah. that's where we're going. It ha well, like, where else could we go? <laughs> they actually, they actually have something similar called. I think it's called Reface. I've heard of that. It's an app. It's an app. I tried it because I I wanted to try Superman and Kevin Costner. So I tried. It's, I think it's called Reface. I believe it is. Look it up on your phone. You can take your face and morph it on your favorite actor and be in a scene. It's coming. Yeah, it's I like five bucks. In the deep, it's fake really wild well, because I thought, yeah, because I tried Superman and I tried Kevin Costner from Yellowstone, and I thought, I know. <laughs> it's it's kind of cool, but I thought it's interesting. You know, maybe when I was maybe twenty years earlier, I would have been looked better. So one of the things that I've seen, because I pay, we're going to be entering film festivals this year um, with our Devil Inside Me project, and one of the things that I've noticed about it is short films are becoming really, really popular. Yeah. Yep. And obviously, I have to Barely. equate with everyone's attention spans. You know, like that. That that's your attention span. Like long. Long form right. video, even long form interviews, like that art is dying. Like it's yeah. not, it's not gonna be, it's fading away. It's just not what it used to be. So as a filmmaker, because you know, you want to engage people, you want to tell the story, you want people to enjoy the acting, the, the cinematography, right. all of it. What does that mean? Like as a filmmaker to see this and go. Well, this is a trend that we can't ignore. Short films are are, are steering up. Can you speak yeah. on that? <clears throat> yeah, uh, it was interesting because short films you learn in film school. And I was never told that's where they belong because you don't want to sit through a first-time filmmaker who's never done one and <laughs> really get into it unless they're really an experienced actor, first-time director, or... Mm -hmm. Look at my film. What about pacing? What about music? Do I even like, you know, you're bored out of your mind. It's like, give me that two hours back or that hour and a half back. That's what you want to avoid. And now because of YouTube, because of uh, social media, um, you have 10 to 15 seconds to catch them. And if you don't catch them, you're done. Yep. And that's reality right now. And it's not going to change. Well, I've done some shorts and I really like them because you can do many of them. Yeah. You can do sure. one long epic. And I was watching, um, I, guess, I think it was an interview with uh, cinematographer Dean Cundy. And he's famous for Back to the Future, uh, Jurassic Park, cinematographer Spielberg. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, this guy's a legend in the cinematography world. And he was doing Back to the Future. I don't know what his last feature film is, but now he only does shorts. He doesn't do anymore. And I touched base with him on Instagram. And I said, I'm a cinematographer, too. I'm not a big shot. At least I don't think I am. And I, he says, I said, how do you like doing shorts? And he he, he wrote back, love them. I said, wow. Because you can do a lot of them. There's no studio input. It's all independent. And you can have creative control. Who's going to, who's going to, what suit is going to fight you over a short? Yeah, it's you know, true. And it could be up to maybe 15 minutes long, whatever the film festival circuit thing is because I'm not prepping a documentary about the company I work for and I have to figure out I have to ask them certain questions but then their answers have to be a certain length mm -hmm. I'm not going to say you can't say that to the boss but I thought if you say it this in this time period it gives us less time to do some other dramatic things maybe so I have to keep it about 10 to 15 minutes but if it's pacing if it's good if people watch if it's rock and roll or if it's dramatic or funny People are going to watch. It's true. And, I, and I'm kind of sold in that because you could have the best actor in the world in a really bad movie. And it's going on constantly now because all the suits 
and I, I can't say this for sure because I've never won, but I've never had this experience. But the number one thing that suits one is one thing, and that is money. They all they yeah. care about is money. They don't care about the art. <laughs> Give me money. Killer clown. I'm sorry, you broke up a little bit. Say that again. I said killer clowns from outer space is yeah, right. <laughs> well, I was actually watching some uh, short uh, feature films on cable one night, some of the ones I'd never heard of, and they were really, really good. And I thought, I'm so sick and tired of the Hollywood film just because they follow that certain formula. And it's like, well, it's cliche. It's beginning, middle, and end. You know what's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. But one of the things that I did enjoy, and I have to plug this because my family is involved in this, but uh, my cousin Tori, her cousin Tony is a feature film producer in Hollywood, and he did the last two Denzel Washington Equalizer films. I he was uh, one movie. of the producers. Yeah, and I remember the TV show in the 80s with the British gentleman, Edward Mulher, I believe it is. And That's I right. watched it, but yeah. Oh, and I mean, Denzel, yeah, 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 I know what you're saying. Yeah. And I thought, actually, I thought the second film was far superior to the first film, but the first film was great. But I thought my cousin, I had a meeting with him in Arizona uh, just before the second one came out. But I really, I hadn't won all the awards that I've won now, but I don't know what Hollywood looks at. And one of the people had mentioned, I think in Arizona, they said, I don't care if it's L.A. Shorts or if the Houston World Fest. If you're not Sundance or Telluride, leave me alone. You know, that's what? what they look for. Here's and I thought, I'm... okay, fine. That's what they look for. But here's the thing. Yeah. That's their blind spot. Because what's going to yeah. happen, it's kind of like streaming um, when when uh, Napster came out. Everyone was, right, right. you know, pissing all over that, going, nah, this is garbage, blah, blah, blah. Well, now look. Everything's streaming. Yeah. So the I love that I love that old I so I I don't want to bat I don't, I do not like to badmouth people but there is a group on Facebook that has uh, Christian filmmakers in it that's one of the it's the theme of the group right and they but they have that old Hollywood mentality in the group as followers of Christ yeah and it's like I left I like this is the most this is douchebaggery I want no part yeah. of it because right. you're all blind to where the industry is going right it's gonna right. change and it's gonna blow up in all of your faces like it's changing it's changing so fast too and it's awesome because everyone's going to get their chance now yeah. uh, if they have the if they have the willingness to pay the price and do the work Everyone's going to get their chance now. That's what technology has afforded us. And I think one of the the biggest influence for me as far as a Christian film, and it's I hate to say it's a Christian film because to me it's a masterpiece, and that's Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson. Mm -hmm. Because that to me, that is the only one that matters really because it was so dramatic and so good and so disturbing, but yet everybody looked at it as like torture porn. I thought, you really don't understand the word of this film at yeah. all. Because I can really only watch it once because this is what Christ is doing for you, for us. Amen. If you look at it as torture porn, then I just suggest you go and watch regular porn because that's all you get out of it. You just get out of it one thing. And yeah. I, I, would, I was actually working in the ministry when I was in Denver producing Christian-based, faith-based uh, videos. And I absolutely loved it. I just loved it. And then the recession came in and kicked us all out. And I've never been able to find, and I would love to work in Christian media again, but not producing sort of like Christian, the stereotype. I just want to get great films that you get a great message out of. And not yeah. stereotype that way. Well, and so Gratitude Unfiltered, the show that you're on right now, it was born out of a meth relapse, like a long one. <laughs> like, and it was God came to me. Yeah. My fourth day, I mean, it saved my life. Him him giving me, coming to me, saved my life that day. Anyway, yeah. without going to all that. But the whole point of this is unfiltered gospel. The whole point of this is to talk about things the church won't talk about. Yeah. And to put a spotlight on the shadow world. And here's the problem, is that Christian films and even the church as, and I, I can't say the whole because I haven't been to every church. I don't know. Yeah. But the churches I've been in, 
they talk about, well, I struggled with porn. Yeah. All right. First of all, you can say a child has been molested by a priest, and guess what? You don't you don't even bat an eye at it because you've been desensitized to it. What yeah. the thing about the passion of the Christ is this, and it's why it's so perfect, and it serves as inspiration for the devil inside me and what my wife and I are doing about my with my testimony is to literally make you feel like death, to yeah. make you feel right. the pain, to tr- wake up your demons that have been hiding inside of you, all of your your triggers that you've that, that have been hiding. Like it's to yeah. awaken all of it to show you what you get to heal, to make you uncomfortable. Because if you don't get uncomfortable, you're not going to change anything. And Christian films are so douchebaggery, it's terrible. Because none of them, it's not real. It's not changing. You're just preaching to the choir. Guess what? That's not changing anything. And the films are lame. They're lame. I want to disrupt Christian film. I want to... I want Christian films. I don't even want to use the word Christian film. I just want to make a film that it draw. Like I want to. Like I. What my hope when we turn the devil inside me into a movie is that it is a secular success yeah. because it's going to yeah. draw people in with all the meat and all the dirty. Yeah. And then show them. Oh, this is how evil you can be, and this is what yeah. Jesus can do for you. Oh. That's what the world needs, not this fluff crap that's yeah. being put out in mass production. It's awful. Well, I think one of the things that I grew up, because I grew up in uh, the pre-teens was in the uh, 70s, teens was in the 80s. So it was interesting seeing all the cheese TV that came out, but it was very family oriented, which I really liked because we could watch it and have fun. The biggest problem with Christian films are they're just done badly. Yeah. The message is good, but it's terrible. And I thought, you know why, right? Is because they're afraid of offending the Catholics, the Baptists, the Meth, everything. Just because if they if they have a kiss, God forbid, they go, they, you know, they dissolve to a different shot. You can't even show affection. I thought this is not being faithful. This is being religious, and there's a difference. Absolutely. And one of the Absolutely. I have to I have to say this about a friend of mine. She's a very very dear friend. I may have even mentioned her too. Her name is Leslie, and she lives here in Texas. Very very dear. I mean. We haven't met yet. It's mainly been through social media, but she's a very strong woman of faith. And we were talking about doing some projects. She's an actress, uh, model, and businesswoman. And we were talking last year, texting about projects that we could do. And I thought it'd be so great to do some faith-based projects. I think of her life, her struggles, and everything else. And I thought, especially if you do it in a wonderful way and tell a story, but don't preach. Just tell a great story. Because anybody and everybody can probably relate, you know. And I've seen some other, like uh, Kirk Cameron, who I deeply admire for going from Hollywood to Christ. And he gets slammed all the time about being how dumb he is. And I thought, keep being dumb. You're being blessed beyond being blessed, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting what they're doing. And Kevin Sorbo and his wife doing faith-based films. And now Dean Cain, TV Superman. And who is the NASCAR writer? The indie, the indie car racer uh, who has a film studio now. Uh, gosh, he was a big. Oh, pro. I don't. I Antonio Sabato Jr. He's got a film. Yeah, studio. yeah, yeah. Antonio Sabato yeah. Jr. Yep. Yeah, he said his acting career is pretty much dead, but I thought no, it's not. Hollywood may be dead, but everyone went to Hollywood. My career isn't dead, but it's all yeah. in how you look at it. Because if you want fame, money, sex, drugs, go to Hollywood. Have at it. And I'm still being contacted today with all my awards from people who are, you know, through Instagram, which is kind of a toilet right now with all the junk I'm getting. But it's a great vessel for many people in the industry because I'm still getting great connections. But they're looking at you like, you've got awards. I need work. What are you going to do for me? Uh, Nothing. I don't know you. But that's what Hollywood is like. It's like, give me work. You know, like, why? Who are you? You know, so there's always the good and the bad with that. You know, I knew I had more confidence um, when I first started getting on sets. I, and I didn't do, I didn't, no one told me this. It was just made sense to me. But when I got on my first set, I hung out by the director. <laughs> like, and I was always ready because I could see everybody sitting off 
on the side and they were on their phones. And I'm like, because I heard a rumor that some people get bumped up to principal roles. That means you're paid quadruples and all that stuff. You go from $120 to $1,500. And it's like, screw these guys. I'm going to be right here and ready to go. I don't care if I'm going to for 14 hours. Every role up until recently, every principal role I've had has come from me sitting there as an extra being ready. Uh, when I got to be Brian Erlacher's body double in the Super Bowl commercial, like it was from that. Like, and then even my the speaking role parts I had, and like I never had that attitude. And I remember a filmmaker named Army Ot Artsy, Army Artsy. Um, he's in LA. He used to be. He's just. I love this guy. And he was dry. He's a little bit older. He was winding out of the industry, but he said to me. He said, if you can maintain your work ethic, you'll blow by everybody. And I always remembered that. And I was so thankful for my upbringing in Oklahoma because I was I learned worth ethic. My parents didn't give me anything. They they taught me to work for it. And I carried that attitude in that, that developed that habit. And it served me well. Those people that think that they're going to walk in and be an overnight success, it, it's just tough. Yeah. If you want to lay on your back and sweat your legs, maybe, but it's not happening in a way that you get to keep your soul. That's for yeah. sure. Well, that's the thing, too, is uh, one of the things I learned in film school is, um, oh, gosh, I think it was it was, a, it was a former alumni of our school. <clears throat> it was a, a second unit cinematographer on Waterworld and, tons of other big name films, but he wasn't a name, but he was a name to me because he had done all these second unit visual effects stuff. And he said, it, it basically takes a miracle to make a film in Hollywood. And I thought, well, that's, that doesn't surprise me. Well, when I got to meet both Ken Lampkin, the first cinematographer, and then Dean Semler, Ken being a very high end TV cinematographer, and then Dean, Mr. Feature Film, Mad Max 2 and 3, Apocalypto, all these huge films. One of the things that I took away was humility because they were the humble, they were gent- they were they invited me on the set. I didn't ask, but when I met Dean, he was actually direct, it was like 10 o'clock at night. Everybody was tired. And, and I remember getting in there and I had my Dance of the Wolves videotape. DVDs weren't out then, but I he signed it, he took a picture with me. He was so down to earth and friendly. Years later, when he called me again, I, I was doing some, I, I always like to watch interviews with these filmmakers because it kind of helps me in situations like this where I never think that I would be invited to be interviewed about my career. Not what they would do, but how they did what they did. Yeah. They just talked. They didn't, I, you know what? I'm the best. I'm the best. You know, it wasn't like that. They talked about the work and the people they thank. And it, they were so, hum, they were so humble and, when Dean called me that night, I didn't know what to say to him. I had no clue what to say to him, but he talked to me like I was an equal. And I thought, yeah. if I, I can only hope, I can only hope I'm as good a half, quarter as good as you. But it was so great because that really wanted me to, to expand my learning and, and and do a better job at every project. But he still, I, I've kind of lost track of him, unfortunately, over the years because I think of health and he's working and. You want to be like that. You don't want to be them as like a fan or an idol, but you want to take away the maturity that you're good. You don't need to tell people you're good because you already are, you know, and you, but it was, it was humility and confidence. And I just took that away. And I thought, man, if I can ever be like this, that would be great. And when I was uh, contacted by Leslie and some of the other people, I never, ever in a million years would think that I would be where I'm at. Ever. You dream about it. You sure. hope. For it. And if it does happen, you think like if you win like best picture or best director, you thought, oh my God, was I the only entry? Did I win by default? You know, you go through that because nobody is encouraged because my mom passed away years ago and she was my greatest cheerleader. Well now mm-hmm. Leslie, she kind of took over that, which is it still chokes me up in a way because she's probably one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen. And I got to know her through texting. We never actually talked. But I thought, don't live in fantasy world of somebody you've never met before. You have to live in reality. But <laughs> her at that time, it's like, I don't deserve this. I don't. But it's like, she's still the most beautiful woman I've ever not seen. 
yeah. and a woman named Cindy, I know, in Dallas and Tammy in Florida. These Damn women great. are just beautiful because they're industry and they get it. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's just really wonderful being able to be around good people. You know, it's interesting too about a film set. And I, I compared this to a group of people that had no clue of what I was talking about the other day. But a film set operates the way the body of Christ is supposed to operate. Everybody walking in their gifts, they're there to serve because our gifts are not about us. Our gifts are for other people. We just get to use them and it brings us joy and purpose and happiness. But a film set, like literally, everyone stays in their lane. They don't, it's not about what the other person is doing. There's no judging. You stay in your lane, you do it in excellence, and that's what you do. And you're there to serve. Yep. It, which is interesting because, you know, the film industry gets all of it, you know, it has such a bad name for being yeah. evil, but it literally operates like the body of Christ yeah. better than churches do. They really do. I mean, <laughs> one of the things that I uh, realized uh, when I first went on this set with Ken Lampkin, and this was an independent feature in San Antonio, I didn't see it then because, like you hanging out with directors, I was around the camera lighting. That's what attracted me. I didn't give a crap who was on. I didn't care if, you know, Robert Redford was on. I didn't care. I just said, give me the camera and I'm happy here. But one of the things that got me was having been in the military, it's like a Christian army or military because it's it's controlled chaos. Yeah. That's because beautiful. you've got people running around everywhere trying to get stuff done, trying to get the shot. Other people over a second unit. You have the main unit over here and you got you know, and people are running around left and right. But nope. But everybody knows what they're doing. That branches on that tree. Mm-hmm. They're going in all over simple directions, but they've got that single root, you know. And that's what I look. I mean, when Christ talked, he he talked in parables, and I thought, okay, well, if Christ isn't God, then what did all your other religion guys do that Christ didn't? What did Buddha do? What did you know, Rama or whatever? What did all these guys do? You know, Christ died for us. But what did Confucian do? Give us a philosophy? Who cares? I've got a philosophy of my own. You know, that type of thing. And you don't want to bash anybody. You don't want to bash anybody. But you say, well, Christ, he was the greatest person who's ever lived on planet mm-hmm. Earth. And nobody will ever replace him. Ever, you know, like like when Rush Limbaugh passed away. Well, nobody could. He's an icon in radio. Nobody could replace yeah, him. Yet I think when people come after him spreading the message of Christ, it's not what you're saying, but it's how you're saying it. That's right. And I thought, it's almost like making a film. It's not specifically the story you're telling, but it's how you're telling that story and the tools you're using telling the story. Because if I have an Airy Alexa that I'm shooting on compared to a Black Magic 4K, are you going to know the difference in, in what the visual image is? Probably not me. I don't think so. I, mean, I probably wouldn't even know, but I kind of would. But it's interesting how that goes because Christian movies were so bad. But yeah. I thought, I think they're more focused on the message than the actual production because I'm bored, click all, click over to watch news, which is awful anyway. <laughs> yeah. and, I worked, and I worked in news for a couple of years as a photojournalist. And, and, I, and I saw it firsthand, the bigotry, the hatred towards Christianity. Awesome. Not in everyone, but the ones that I worked at. Because yeah. I was at uh, one NBC station. This goes out of 13, 14 years ago. And I was going to a church, and the church had a shooting, made national news. I wasn't a member. I just went there because they had yeah. a group that I liked. And the news director, she said, uh, I, I was having a misunderstanding with that reporter. And she looked at me saying, well, I'm going to go with the reporter because everybody knows you go to that church. I thought, you're discriminating against me. You're making a judgment against me that you have no clue about. That really opened my eyes up to the biasness of the media and what they can portray, say, you know, like the drive-by media that Rush says. Yeah. It's like, you don't know the facts. You're just reporting what you think is happening, but delve deeper, you know, that type of thing. And that's a lot of what, not movies, but the message, you know, it's all about sex, drugs, rock and roll. It always has been, always will be. But I thought if there's a different message to that, and if it resonates, that's going to be a threat. You know what the most shocking thing in the world is? That would sell better than anything anyone Hollywood writer could ever dream of. Truth. Oh, yeah. Tell me. I... Truth. Oh. oh, yeah. If we just told the truth, what an amazing story that is. 
because the tr the truth has a power, a superpower, unlike anything yeah. else. And well, all the stories in itself are fascinating. I don't care if you're somebody that sits on your couch and watches TV. There's a story why you're sitting your butt in front of that TV all day, a day long. There's a story there. There's right. something there. Like yep. our truth, our story is enough. Yep. But we've we've become infatuated with. You know, I heard someone say this, and this is completely off the subject, but because comedy is dying too. Comedy is sucks yeah. now. Like, there's right. no. Right. The reason why is what makes things funny is when it's true. Yeah. Yep. But when you're lying or trying to manipulate or you're twisting the truth, you lose the humor. Because it's not rooted in anything. Well, I think well, I was talking to somebody the other day about this, and I thought that it's, it seems that the culture changes when the presidency does. Yeah, that's right. And I thought you have, you know, Obama when he came out. And um, I don't want our presidents to fail. I never do. Having served in the military, I respect the office too much. But when somebody comes in and the media just adores them, then I have a problem. Sure. Because it's not what they do, but it's how the media and news media are fawning over this guy. Never, to, It's like we just want him because of or because of this reason, because of that. And to me, I loved it when Trump came in and just shook things up and pissed everybody off. <laughs> I love that because mm -hmm. he, he they really needed to. And the because I, I look way back at the 1970s when Vietnam, that changed the culture. Sort of the Persian Gulf War. And all these things happen, and I thought, I don't get Hollywood because Hollywood is a bunch of rich millionaires voting against policies that make them rich millionaires. They want everybody to be equal. No, they don't. Do you think Brad Pitt wants to make the same money as a grip? I don't no. think so. You know, I, I don't know what his deal is, but then you have these <laughs> idiots like Michael Moore and you know these documentary filmmakers who will slam everything that make them successful. Like yeah. Biden out of Egypt. I thought, I don't want to be like that because I make documentaries, but that doesn't mean I'm a documentary filmmaker. I'm a filmmaker, pure and simple, and I want to do more. It just, yeah. I just happen to be doing this right now, like Ken Burns, you know. Yeah. But I know it's, it's, the, it's the stories and faith-based that really get you, but it all goes back to one thing, and that is money. That's all yeah. it is. Well, and I, I look for the technology that's available, and, like, I know, like, one of the networks that I produce for, like, I know this piece of technology that we have that, is going to be amazing for filmmakers and and how they can monetize and where they can still be in control of their art i'm excited about that because we're getting ready to unveil a saturday night at the movies kind of thing and um i'm really pumped about it but paul i am um, i am so listen i want to have you back on i i could talk oh, to you for you. hours yeah, great. i'm i'm going to take my wife on a date and um I'm going to eat a hamburger. So we can do this again. <laughs> it's lucky you have you have a woman because uh, it's so great when you can share your passion with somebody who gets it. She, Listen, she has been the greatest gift to me. And I've been married three times, failed them. I've failed in every relationship. But, yeah. you know, her, she's it, it, like my true, like if there's ever was somebody chosen for me, it's her. Right. And uh, we get to create together. She, we share the same gifts, and it's like, it's just, it's so much fun. It's so much joy. And I, but I've been like, we, like, it's just, yeah. I'm ready to take her. Good, hey, I, I saw what she looked like, and I gotta go. She looks too good. Yeah. Well, that's the thing too with uh, this uh, woman, Leslie, because I talk about her a lot because she just means so much to me. But not being able to meet her, and we we discussed this one time too because having her be a strong woman of faith. She has mm. two kids, and they're just gorgeous kids. And I thought, my gosh, the gene pool is great in your family. But I know that she's been going through a lot lately. And I told her, it's like every time I get an email from you, I smile. I don't care what you're saying. It can be the worst news in the world, but you're sharing this with me, and that's what I appreciate. Because you, once you stop hearing from them, due to whatever reason, it's like you really, really miss that because that really fed me during COVID. And now that mm -hmm. I'm here in Texas, hopefully we'll meet one of these days. But I understand the specialness of somebody. And when you hear from them, and this could be from other, a good friend, I just heard from a, a, one of my best friends that I went to in high school, celebrated a birthday. And he was so happy for my success. And I thought, well, I'm not a millionaire yet, but I'm doing okay. <laughs> okay. But it's interesting how people react to that and support. 
Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's it's a true blessing because everything we get to do is because of our partnership. And that's, to me, is awesome. Well, that's great. That's what I'm looking for in other places. Paul, you are uh, I honestly, man. Like, I'll have you back anytime. I, I'm, I'm a fan of you. I, I, I love you more as a human being than. I mean, you never know what to expect when you, you know, you're yeah. chatting through chat and stuff like that. But I, man, count me as a fan, brother. I, I, you're welcome back anytime, and uh, so honored that you're here. Um, I will prepare the media kit that has everything and send it to you. It'll have all your, like everything that you're doing in it. And um, and we'll publish that. But I listen. I again, you're welcome back anytime. And I hope one day we get to work. This has been great. Yeah, well, it's really been great to be able to talk to somebody because it's like you never. I don't expect ever to do stuff like this. And um, I've got two more podcasts coming up. One in California, and I thought, good grief, you want to interview me? And I thought, you just can't believe it because you're not around people like a publicist, and you know, you're not around that environment. So. It's like, is this a joke? I mean, April, it's April, but not April Fool's Day, you know. So I'm just so grateful to that and being able to say thank you to Dean and Ken and to Leslie and all these other people who, and my family, can't, you know, can't dissuade them, of course. But it's so great when you can just say thank you and, you know, to the God above that it lives in all of us. And he saved me and he continues to save me every day and get me through a lot of stuff, my mom's death and everything else. But I, but the great thing about it is this is just temporary. Let's do great work because, you know, we're going to be going somewhere else where we belong. Amen. So beautiful, Paul. God bless you, man. Have a great weekend, and I'll be in touch. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being here. Absolutely, man. See you soon. Wow, that was awesome. That was so cool. Um, You guys have a blessed weekend. What a day this has been for broadcast, but that was such a cool way to end it. and I, I have a feeling that he's going to be back on because there's a, so much there. Uh, what I just, what a cool guy. Like I, I didn't know what to expect. I was a fan, and then now I really like the guy. So that's amazing. Um, and so we'll be publishing, publishing this less, uh, publishing this interview on the LiveModelWorldwide.org later. That'll have the audio, the transcript, uh, and the video because you know social media is holding our po- our, our, our message back, but. You can go to Live Model Worldwide and be able to see it. Thank you to everyone watching on the Live Model Worldwide Multimedia Broadcast Network. I uh, just want to thank everyone for your support going over there because, honestly, you supporting Live Model Worldwide and our broadcast network um, is means way more than seeing us on Facebook because Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, all of those social media platforms, that's, that's not us. When you go to livemodelworldwide.org and watch our content or check us out on the streaming TV networks, that's helping support our foundation. And that means a lot uh, because we believe in our mission and we're grateful for the opportunity to get to serve in the way that we do. So you supporting us matters. So thank you. Also, in this bottle right here is, you can't see it. There's the liquid. This bottle is going to change the world. More info to come.